We're back. We're back. It's a distraction. I'm rude. That's Roth. I almost said I'm Roth. Roth, which would have been so confusing wow. for people. I think the listeners would have liked it, though. They would have been like, that's not. He's That guy's way more excited. It's like how like uh, I call my sons, like, I'll call him after the dog. Or I'll call my wife one of my son's names. I'll call the dog one of my son's names. Like, once you hit my age, names are basically <laughs> interchangeable. It's really, like, you could just be... Like- you could be Barry Pacheski for all I know. Like yeah. it's just you don't need to say you don't need to know everybody's name. You just got to be able to you know as long as you're calling somebody a name, they'll probably respond to it. Oh, that sounds that sounds like a good. Yeah, idea. I'm just trying to give you. This is it, man. We're just here having fun. I want to give you as much runway. You can call me uh, whatever you'd like. No, no, I'm gonna call all you right. Roth or or Rothy or Rotherburger. Mm, I don't know. Actually, let me let me go back to amend my earlier statement. I don't think Rothy's gonna work for me. Or Dr. Just the DR. Yeah, all right. Dero. That would be so, so intensely shitty. Let's just get to the guest because that's better. Uh, yeah. It's Defector's own Israel Daramola. Hi, Israel. Wow. How are you, man? Hey, guys. How are you? Pretty good. good. It's, a, it's a pleasure to have you on. You are the newest addition to the Defector staff. And is so, it a pleasure now? It yeah. is. So yeah. Far, we stopped talking think, about uh, things you could call me other than my name. So I'm loving this part. Of, this is my favorite part of the podcast so far. I live with my wife and three kids, Israel. Any new faces are welcome faces. <laughs> I promise you. It's like, like, we can't wait. Anytime someone visits our house, Israel, we're like, oh my God, a different person. Everyone in this family is so excited to see someone who's not in the family. It's it's a very nice moment for all of us. <laughs> That's kind of concerning, but all right, I'll take that. <laughs> well, no, no way. I mean, don't you don't have to take it that literally. We don't actually all hate each other. It's yeah, you, know, you get like you need a you like to you like to freshen up the atmosphere once in a while. Like if it was just Roth and I every week, and we'd like eventually, you know. Eventually we'd strangle each other. There's no doubt about it. Everybody knows that. So clearly. Well, there should be some some hate between families, like a little healthy hatred. Yes, that's right. So I, I mean, not, not hate, just a little, a little, a sous of tension, you know, just a, just a little bit. Anyway, the point is you're here and that is great. And Roth, because uh, now the Super Bowl is over, we don't have to talk about the NFL this week. Instead, we get to talk about the XFL. Huh? Not, huh? Nobody negotiated this with me. I did not approve. <laughs> My favorite league, everyone knows. Yep. So Israel came aboard not explicitly as our XFL beat writer, uh, but you've grabbed that role by the horns and have really uh, done some great work on that sp- in that space. Listen, when the when the Roughnecks are playing the uh, Battle Hawks, I guess I got to be there. My favorite. So I had the experience watching the XFL this weekend. I watched maybe 15 minutes of it, but it was, I think, yeah. And I, I'm not proud of it. I think it's pretty clear by now that I'm not bragging about having watched the XFL on the weekend, the weekend of my birthday could have been doing anything. And I was like, is that AJ McCarron? And it was. Oh, that's always a nice moment. Yeah. And I think that's like the XFL experience in, you know, sort of, as, as I recall, like more or less as long as it has existed in all of its various guises. It's an exercise in like the deepest and um, like most pathological edge of remembering guys. And you get recent guys too, which is always nice. You don't have to go too far back into the archive. Like it's AJ McCarron. He was like, he was the hottest backup quarterback in football. Like, Seven years ago, people were like, oh, we should trade for A.J. McCarron. He'd be a great quality starter <laughs> for us long-term Israel. And now I'm just so bummed my team never had A.J. McCarron at the front. This is a real question I have. Do you yes. think when Nick Saban sees A.J. McCarron's name on his phone that he's just like, fuck? Yep. And like, <laughs> let's, go, let's go to voicemail. Well, I mean, do you think that A.J. McCarron has Saban's direct number? Oh, I think, I think that, like, I remember when he was at Alabama and they had, like, this whole, like, because that was back when Saban could win championships with, like, me yeah. at quarterback. <laughs> he seemed like he was going out of his way to, like, just recruit, like, just a guy with bangs from Alabama, but just a white man with bangs and then win a championship with that person. Jay Parker was, the third. Yeah. <laughs> but, like, I, I do think that, like, AJ McCarron kind of felt like he had some kind of like father son relationship with Nick Saban during that during his time in Alabama and like the way he would fight on McCarron's behalf. They're like, no, he's definitely not a 
system quarterback. He's he should get the Heisman, sure. <laughs> it was funny that Saban at one point, like he just had no good quarterbacks because it didn't matter because he had all pros at every other position on the field. And then eventually Saban was like, you know what? This isn't quite working the way I want. Why don't instead I get a quarterback who's going to get drafted number one every year and we'll just do it that way. And he did. He just snapped his fingers. It was like, hey, I have Bryce Young. That's nice. Like, it's cool to be able to do that, Israel. Do you think, do you think AJ McCarron looks at Mac Jones and is like, I'm as good as that guy? Totally. I feel like I kind of look at Mac Jones and I'm like, AJ McCarron is roughly as good as that guy. Like, I don't know that I'm necessarily wrong. I feel like it's sort of uh, whatever it is that's separating them, it's mostly a, a matter of how teams evaluate Alabama quarterbacks now but I think that like McCarron had like about as good a career as you could have in the NFL as a uh, Nick Saban system dude of his era well the other thing is that I this was the year where I did a complete turn and felt like I I got an affection for Mac Jones because he clearly hated his fucking coaches so much because they sucked so I was like, they're doing wrong by poor Mac Jones. I wish Mac Jones would would flourish in New England because I've been a Patriots fan all my life, Israel, and everybody uh, knows that. Well, that was definitely the most relatable Mac Jones has ever been. It was just him and his hatred for all those guys. Yeah, yeah. when he was like, he's like, he's like, the running game fucking blows. Our running game is shit. Stop doing that. I think everyone <laughs> who saw that clip was like, yeah. He's right. He should be coaching the team, not fucking Matt Patricia. <laughs> so anyway, Israel, I didn't answer your question, and I should answer your question, which is that I don't I think if Nick picks up the phone, I think he sounds very much like me when I answer the phone, and you can tell that I am dying to get off as fast as I can. <laughs> so I think that I think he's like so I think Nick answers the phone, he's like, Yeah, hello? Oh, oh hey Aaron. Hey AJ. Uh, yeah, that's great. Well, I'll, I'll, I'm praying for you. Goodbye. Like, I think that's kind of how the, the call would go. <laughs> yeah, he definitely ends it with I'm praying for you. Yep. Uh, Israel, Mac McClung won the NBA slam dunk Wait, are we, contest. So we're done? No more XFL? We're not doing it anymore? Yeah, I think that is that is more respect than we need to pay to the XFL. Like, I, Wade, this is always, Wade Phillips. Every time these leagues start, like, they get a boost from, like, if they have a rule tweak, like Florio and the broadcast partners are like, oh, the NFL should adopt this, which the NFL will. The NFL will just nick it. Fine, whatever. I do love that that's part of the the XFL like marketing now. It's like, let's check out the new stuff that the NFL is going to steal. Come on. <laughs> right. Yeah. They that's the whole here first. Yeah. It's like, hey, like that was the whole point of this XFL. It was like, okay, we're going to be a test lab for the NFL. You don't actually have to watch us. And in fact, you won't like you'll yeah. watch the first game and, and like people will tweet out, wow, ratings for this were better than ratings for NBA regular season basketball in Sacramento this week. That's pretty big. And then they go down 80% the next week. That's always what happens. So that's like a Colin Coward uh, segment. Yeah. Like people just don't care because the NBA went woke, whereas the XFL, everybody loves the new punt rule. So <laughs> look at, yeah, it feels like what Major League Baseball did with the Atlantic League, which was that. So that's a minor league that is not only not on television, that it is not affiliated like that is uh, just an independent minor league that MLB worked out these rule changes with where they basically stuff that was so invasive that they didn't want to do it even on minor league baseball players in affiliated systems where they were like, yeah, we're going to move the mound back like five feet. And we know that there's, we don't want this to impact anybody that might conceivably play in the majors someday if it doesn't work. So we're going to do it to the Bridgeport bluefish. And then they would just do it. And (laughs) it was, it had this kind of uh, unseemly R and D lab element to it. So the idea of doing that with uh, like Josh Gordon, it gets to be like patient zero for whatever the new hand check rules are is kind of it like it's gross, but it kind of fits with the NFL, too, where they're just kind of like, well, you know, if it happens to A.J. McCarron, did it really happen at all? Yeah. I mean, I think that was A.J. McCarron's NFL career, too. Yeah, I mean, true. <laughs> by the way, we I didn't have it on the rundown, Roth, but we didn't talk about big bases. How alarmed are you by the advent of big base and is big it. base going to take over Major League Baseball? How big will the bases get? Are we talking like 
Is it possible we get to the size of a car or a yeah. swimming pool? So I think that that's what we need to do. So the basis, obviously, uh, you know, have been expanded a small amount. It's basically the difference between a, a medium pizza and a large pizza now. <laughs> yeah, right. But that's not how America works. And I do think that there's, you know, once people get used to the big bases, you know, the, the base lobby starts doing its thing in Washington, uh, you know, with those clowns in Congress. And then, uh, you know, as fans start getting, you know, they love the big base, they love the stolen bases, bases get bigger and bigger. It wouldn't surprise me, yeah, if we're dealing with the size of, a, I don't like a Kia Soul by the end of the decade. Well, then it would, ha- it would have the Kia logo on it. It would. It'd be and raised. then Mac McClung would dunk over it. It would be very <laughs> exciting. And, and All right. Fun. Yeah, we're getting confused. Doesn't that make the game easier if the bases are bigger? Am I confused by that? That's part of what the justification is to the extent that I've heard it is basically um, making it like that's how they think they can goose stolen base numbers. And to a certain extent, that's obviously true. And I guess there's a safety element because they don't like it when, you know, every now and then somebody will step on somebody else's ankle at first or second or whatever. But uh, it kind of feels like a solution in search of a problem, too, to a certain extent. And I don't know that MLB has ever shown the ability to stop solving non-existent problems once they started taking up that mantle. So we'll see. Will the bats follow Roth? Will the bats get big? You know, like the, the red wiffle ball bats that are like six inches thick <laughs> and you can just clobber the fuck out of a wiffle ball with it? Will the ones the bats- that make the big like punk sound. Yeah, in the I want yeah. the Looney Tunes bat. Is that going to happen? <laughs> uh, you know, I'm sure they're looking into it. The, the, um, the wood requirements would probably raise prices some, but some would argue that it's worth it. All right, Israel, I want to go back to Mac McClung because Mac McClung discourse is really what this podcast is all about. He won the NBA slam dunk contest this past weekend, despite the fact that he, Mac McClung, does not actually play in the NBA. Do either of you gents, and I'll start with you, Israel, have a problem with this or is it just who gives a fuck? Whatever. As long as the dunk is cool, I don't give a fuck if it's if they bring back Brent Barry to do it. I mean, it's just kind of a testament to how desperate they are to get people to participate in these challenges and these contests. I mean, they had Julius Randle doing the three-point contest. Yeah, I saw that. I was like, like, what the fuck is he doing there? And he got like eight points. (laughs) These guys, they're just running out of people to do stuff. Like, no one wants to do anything. Is there more more fun uh, if you if you have a three-point uh, contest that's all centers and you have a dunk contest that's all extremely tiny white guys who a- can't actually dunk, like if, <laughs> if it's like a real challenge for these people, would that be more fun? I think the dunk contest would be more fun because then you get to just watch them fall all over the place and you get to see how like, close they get to the net. But like watching people miss threes is boring. It's terrible. Yeah. Um, yeah, that one is hard to... Because I feel like some of my most vivid memories of the dunk contest are guys fucking up at it. Like, it's Chris Anderson saying, Birdman's gonna fly, and then missing 11 <laughs> consecutive dunks. Like, that, to me, is, like, what it's all about at some level. Whereas, yeah, like, watching Julius Randle airball a money ball is, like, I mean, I literally could do that myself. Like, right, I could go yeah. to the park right now and fuck up just as badly. And uh, to me, like, what's weird about it about the McClung thing, and it's not, like, objectionable because I don't think any of this rises to the level of thing that a person should care about. The dunks are still really good. Like, it was a fun contest to watch, and he was great. Like, he absolutely well, deserved I, it. Uh, you know, I mean, I got into this with, like, well, not got into it, but I explained this with Ray and Justin on AMP yesterday. I think Mac did a great job. Good dunks. Uh, he definitely deserved to win. You I know feel Trey Murphy. Coming, I, I like Trey Murphy, but like uh, he made the classic Aaron Gordon mistake. He ran out of ideas. Yep. And you can't run out of ideas. I think my thought, and this is me advocating on behalf of white people everywhere. I thought the entire Mac McClung celebration was the most patronizing thing I've ever seen. Where it's just like a bunch of people just sort of like being like condescendingly surprised that this white guy has these great dunks. And there was, I do kind of feel like it was a little bit of inflated numbers because it's a white guy doing these dunks. 
And I think that's unfair to you Wait, guys. I think that's unfair. Are you saying the system benefited a white person? That never happens. Yeah. Well, well one, <laughs> it, it benefited, but it benefited in a very almost like I, it, I compared it to like the white when, you know, those videos of like a white guy who actually knows how to dance and everybody gets excited. <laughs> yeah. Like that's kind of, that's kind of what it was. That's kind of what the dunk contest would. So that, that fits. I think that, What's hard about it, because I don't think that that's necessarily wrong. I thought the dunks were really good. I also feel like he's easily the most obscure player ever to be in the dunk contest. And so some of that patronizing is obviously because he's like a little white guy with a not great haircut. But then some of it is also because unless you're in our work slack getting yelled at by Laura Wagner and Dave McKenna, both of whom have... Uh, deep-seated DC area rooting interests in yeah. Matt McClung's success. <laughs> you don't. No one knows who he is. Like, there's no actually, reason why anyone would know who he is. Actually, that's not true. The internet knows who he is. The internet knows who he. That's right, because he's been like a YouTube guy since he was in high school. And that's the real reason he was in the dunk contest. Oh, that's interesting. That, like, they the NBA have gone like full social media. Like, that's kind of where they get their numbers now instead of TV ratings. So they're just trying to appeal to the sort of people who watch highlights on Instagram, which is oh, fine. It's a little dispiriting when you consider that, like, in my lifetime, the dunk contest had, like, guys that were playing in the All-Star game in it. That it would it be, Michael like, Michael Jordan, Jordan against Dominique Wilkins is a lot different than The Professor versus, uh, like, Escalade versus, like, the YouTube guy. Like, that's not... But well, the, the thing is, like, and because everybody always wants to say, like, well, did LeBron ruin it by not doing it? Or did, like, who was the one that's the, the problem with that? These players started getting paid a lot. And so when you get paid a lot, the incentive to do things like the dunk contest no longer has like you'd only be doing it just to just to do it. It no longer becomes a thing that's enticing because you're getting paid way too much money. And, you know, this is not me complaining because, like, I, yeah, I've never been, like, a big... Yeah, I've never been a big all-star guy, weekend guy, but, you know, I think it's an event more than it's uh, a good TV show. But I just... I think that it's a little unfair, the idea that uh, any one player is the reason why the dunk contest doesn't work anymore. Like it doesn't appeal to the players anymore. Well, the other thing is that, you know, back in the eighties and nineties, there was, um, and this sounds very crass, but there was branding value to it for a player. You know, you won the dunk contest. You were a name. Like it was important. It established you as a guy who could fly and maybe gave you marketing opportunities. You wouldn't have had otherwise. That's no longer the case now that, um, you know, you have Instagram, you have so many different ways to, make a public name for yourself. All you have to do is be shitty on Instagram, essentially as an NBA player, and you'll get all the attention you require. So like, you don't have to rely on a dunk contest to get your name out there. And so it's not going to make you famous in the way it used to. That is a really good point. And I, I think you will forget, you know, before Jordan sold themselves, the idea of like the reason you bought Jordans was like, there's a fantasy that you could, they could make you jump like Michael Jordan. Yeah. And part yeah. of that is like Michael Jordan doing dunk contests and like flying way too high in the air. And like they were, it was always selling something. It was always like, and it's always sort of like a, a way to get something out of it for the players. And they're just not that anymore. I mean, although Mac McClung made more money off three dunks than he's made playing professional basketball in his entire life. So I guess if you get far enough to the margins, then there you are. I think he's made more money on Instagram than he's made in the entire NBA. Yeah, he's got. Well, I hope that he, whatever, continues to get to endorse whatever products. Is he, uh, he's doing Casper mattress ads and appearing with Taylor Heineke in an Eastern Motors commercial or something. I don't know what, what he's doing with uh, for revenue outside of the playing basketball space, but I hope it's working for he him. He went to Georgetown. He'll, he'll be all right. Also, I have to tell you that he has the advantage of having a completely ludicrous name. So, like, once you hear the name Mac McClung, you don't forget it. You're like, oh, Mac McClung with a leg for a lung and a lung for an arm. He's a great guy. I can't wait to. Let's call uh, him Mac McDunk. How about before, that? Wow. Oh, that's good. Oh, yeah. snap. Yeah, that's right. Hey, uh, before right. we take a break, I want to <laughs> ask you one more dunk question. 
Israel, which is that do you think it's possible, and I'm saying this from my own personal perspective, where I have, and I don't like this about myself, I have something akin to dunk fatigue where I'll see an amazing dunk in the dunk contest and I'll be like, yeah, it's all right. Like, like a guy is flying over a fucking, like a horse and I'll just be like, yeah, that was pretty good. And like, cause I've seen pretty much every variation on a dunk that you can see, particularly without props. Like they almost need to just bring props into it now to make it interesting. Do you ever have a problem with dunk fatigue Israel? Do you think America has a problem with it? Of course, America has a problem with dunk fatigue. I mean, like how many, you know, this is why I'm such a, a fan of like the Aaron Gordon year. Cause like, he, you know, he lost and he probably, the way the gate, the contest shook out, he probably should have lost. But I thought he deserved to win because he was the only one who came out with an original idea for the first time in years. And I think that's really, really hard to come up with new ideas for dunks. It was the year he lost to Zach Levine. Is that correct? Yes. And Zach Levine just did what he did the year previously, which is just variations on other people's dunks, but that's fine. I just think that like, it's, I think that uniqueness should be rewarded, but I also think that it's just, it's, it's really hard to come up with new ideas. Now there's nothing that we haven't seen at this point. I think was it McClung that tried that like dunked over two people? Yes. Or yeah, like you know, I I I I respect that, but it's also like you know, if you can't come up with an idea, just add more of something. Right. That's I think that's the- that's exactly. It's like if someone tried to like do one of the Dwight Howard dunks, but they're wearing two capes. It's like at some point you're not adding value in that scenario. <laughs> you're just like making a reference that everyone can get. There needs to be danger, like if there's a pit underneath the basket, like when you're dunking, then, then I'm good. Like a like or like a like there's a, an alligator, and they're holding the alligator, and like its jaws are right where your ball sack is, like when you're when you're flying through the air, and you got to make sure that he doesn't bite your nuts off. Then we're talking about some real hardcore entertainment. Yeah, at least in good I have always I have always said we need to go like full evil Knievel. <laughs> and just like jump through a, 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 a ring of fire and all sorts of stuff. Dude, Can for I, real, if there was a ring of fire dunk, I would be fucking there. Cause that Levine uh Murray dunk contest, that's the last one I really remember fondly and like watched and was and was riveted by. And you had you had a ring of fire. I'm I'm fucking there, man. We should talk more NBA when we get back with uh Israel Daramola. Uh we'll be right back. But first, today's podcast is sponsored by Tungley the world's first AI chef. Don't know what to eat for dinner tonight? <laughs> Tungley will devise, yes, devise a recipe for you on the spot. Chicken a la custer, lentil dogs, egg salad lasagna, <laughs> and more. All recipes are 100% original and 100% delicious. Lee at Tungley, tungley.com. We'll see you in a second. <laughs> lentil dogs. This episode is sponsored by us, The Distraction. The best way to grow a podcast is by word of mouth. And The Distraction audiences have demonstrated that they have great mouths and have an ability to use them. So if you have a mouth and it works, please tell someone about our little show, coworker, a friend you talk sports with, your brother-in-law who loves sandwiches, your entire union, or anyone you think would like deeper analysis on sports and the weirdness that is being alive in the year 2023 and beyond. Tell them to listen to The Distraction wherever you get your podcasts or click on the blog posts every Thursday at Defector.com. Tell them Drew and Roth sent you and then explain that we're the hosts and that you like us a lot. This episode is also sponsored by Shaker and Spoon, a subscription cocktail service that helps you learn how to make world-class cocktails right at home. Every box comes with enough ingredients to make three unique cocktail recipes developed by award-winning mixologists. All you need to do is buy one bottle of that month's spirit and you have all you need to make 12 drinks at home. This is a cost-effective way to enjoy craft cocktails and level up your home bartending skills. If you've ever wondered how mixologists manage to create such incredible drinks as I myself have wondered, this is worth trying out. Order just one box or treat yourself to a monthly subscription. You can get $20 off your first box at shakerandspoon.com distraction. That's $20 off at shakerandspoon.com slash distraction. Mm-hmm. 
And we're back with our own Israel Daramola, and we're going to talk more about the NBA. Israel, John Morant is the most exciting player in the NBA again. But this season, we've learned that his crew, especially friend Devontae Pack and his dad, T. Morant, are very loud, annoying, and needy. Should I actually be concerned about these guys disrupting Jaws games, or is that just familiar concern trolling from old farts about, oh, I'm, I'm worried about the people he's hanging out with? Uh, it's probably both. Um, you know, I think we've seen this story time and time again, and so can, many times it can go really badly if, in just like a matter of like one bad moment. And uh, you know, I don't know enough about Todd and his friends to sort of say anything negative towards them. I, what I would say, though, is that I think, and this is, a, I think, a problem with the Grizzlies in general, and maybe it's because they're just so young. Uh, I think they they are they have decided that, and I and part of it is that they play for Memphis, and you know, you know, young people get really into uh, their like identities of of the cities that they play for, or you know the teams that they come to represent. And I think they want to sort of be the new tough uh, Memphis team and looked at the way, you know, past tough Memphis teams yeah. have been looked at. Like trying the great to do Brad the great and, great and Yeah. Yeah. So it makes sense. And I just think that they're a little too image conscious more than they are like basketball conscious. I think that they don't really seem to get that like, being good at basketball, a lot of that stuff will come with it. You know, you just like play hard and like do your thing on the court. You don't really need to huff and puff all the time. Yeah. I think they overcompensated in that regard. Cause like they were already, they already had an identity. They were like everybody's second favorite team. They were like this young team that did all these fun things. All the players were getting better roughly on the same timetable and then trying to like graft this brand like you don't need zach randolph's brand if you're a team with jaron jackson jr and john moran on it (laughs) i think that's part of the and that's i think part of the issue of when you have a team that's that that's that young and uh that good immediately because really realistically they should kind of be like the thunder uh you know still kind of figuring out an identity and maybe like getting a couple uh, next year they'll get a couple of older pieces and they can help mold them into how they should conduct themselves but because they've been so good uh, right away they've kind of been forced to become like real contenders and you know they view themselves as real contenders but they also don't know how to do this day in and day out and it just like it seems so obvious that they're kind of going to be like that utah jazz era of team where it's like you do really well in the regular season and then you just get torn apart in playoffs and i don't want that for them i think i want them to succeed but you know i think you don't you never want to be a team that like other teams kind of roll their eyes at yeah and I, I, you know, that's sort of where Memphis is going. But to get back to the job thing, I think that, you know, um, this family is a family and, you know, they have have a lot of, you know, I I can't sit here and, and say I would not want to sort of act out if I had, if I was related to, like, one of the best players in the league, you know? And I was just out on like hanging in court side every every game and like yeah bro get him bro and all stuff like i can't act like i wouldn't be you know kind of a dickhead about it too but i think that (laughs) at some point do you have to be the like i think john needs to realize that he is now in charge kind of like you know when you become the superstar and you are making way more money than like everyone you know combined you become the one who's in charge and you kind of have to tell them that like hey you kind of need to calm down a little bit that's not a skill that i think anybody necessarily is born with either like the idea of having to go up to your dad and be like you're embarrassing me 
and I'm saying this as someone who's like paying for all of your shit now. Like you need to calm down. That's a strange thing to say to somebody. I uh, I noticed uh, it's almost unavoidable in certain ways because the sports culture, and this has been forever, uh, has involved teams and particularly certain players, <laughs> Aaron Rodgers, uh, if they don't have a chip, an actual chip on their shoulder, they have to manufacture it. And then I got to hear about it for the rest of my fucking life. So the Grizzlies can be a perfectly good, young, joyful team. And yet someone could get the idea, you know what? It would be better if we were also the bad boy Pistons too. And it's like, you'll be, you be Bill Lambeer and everyone will hate us. And then we'll have to say, well, we, we shocked the world. Like, I feel like that is just such a familiar trope. They almost can't help but fall into it. Uh, Israel or, uh, Maybe I'm wrong. No, I think that's that's how a young team thinks. It's like we have to be intimidating to sort of. It's like a such a when you don't know how to actually get in people's heads or don't know how to actually, you know, sort of compete in this league straight up. If you you invent personas that you think will sort of you know, be these like overarching uh, characters that you can play on the court. And uh, I just, I, I kind of think that they need to worry about just being good. And, you know, I think they have a good coach, but I also think, I wonder if uh, he can wrangle these guys sometimes because it kind of seems like they just, he lets them go a little wild. And uh, I don't know. They just have a lot to figure out, I think, from a, not even necessarily from a basketball standpoint, even though they've been kind of bad over the past couple of months. But I think that as a as a team, they just have a lot to work out that they haven't quite figured out. And that's why I don't really think they'll they'll do much this year in the playoffs. They might need to be humbled a little bit, so I don't know. And so you seem to you said earlier that you thought they'd be like the Utah Jazz, where they never get over the hump. I mean, I think they're at risk of that, definitely. Uh, okay, especially especially this year, and uh, and whether or not they're willing to learn from from those mistakes, I I just I don't know. I just thought you know when they when they lost to the to the Warriors last year. Uh, I thought they would come out a little bit more serious, I guess, this year. But it seems like they've almost convinced themselves that, like, oh, if we're just like because the Warriors won, maybe that they've convinced themselves if we if we can beat them, we'll we'll be the new champions. But they they haven't even figured out how to do that yet. So I don't really I don't know. I think that's kind of but that's 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 what happens when you have too much youth on one team. Right. It's I was going to say, like, it, what you're describing is classic 23-year-old decision-making behavior. Yeah, it's just really it's just really young decision-making. Well, also, if you're taking, you know, if you're taking the, the broader influence of Kobe Bryant, who basically concocted a sort of a black hat persona for himself for very, very gross reasons, by the way. Um, but, you know, people going from there being like, oh, okay, you know what? Well, this is my NWO phase and I, I'm a bad boy now. And this is my bad guy alter ego. And you don't want to mess with him. Like, I feel like that, that, that is an heirloom that Kobe has bequeathed on people that I don't particularly care for all that much. Shooting a, you know, 30% and getting eight points a game. That's okay. I can watch that. I mean, I listen, you're, you're, you're preaching to the choir. I, I'm not a, um, I'm a mentality fan either, but I also don't think that that's, this feels more almost Especially with Jaw, it feels very Iversonian a little yeah. bit. But, mm, okay. You know, Iverson at least you could understand where that where a lot of that came from. Um, you know, you if you knew his story and how he came up, and also just it was a different time in the NBA where you could almost just be a one man wrecking crew, right? And uh. I think it's almost like a team full of Iversons, but not from necessarily a, a, a wanting the ball aspect, but a wanting to have the sort of persona that Iverson had off the court 
uh, on the court, if that makes any sense. And it feels like uh, kind of a, in the way that all of this stuff sort of does, including the Mamba shit, where it's like you're getting the sort of like hand-me-down version of it that you get like a second generation dub across, you know, all of these years since it was actually there where like Iverson was like a really compelling player. And he was, you know, as you said, like, I mean, he was on these shitty teams and he carried them as far as he could, like on his own effectively with all, you know, due respect to Eric Snow, I guess, and Matt Geiger. Oh, legendary. There's, but that, you know, over the course of time, like if you really like only saw him as a little kid or, you know, like didn't see him at all, I mean, somebody Jaws age really wouldn't have seen Peak Iverson with their own eyes. That at that point, like if all you remember about him is that he was like too real and uh, got in trouble for his haircut and his tattoos and stuff, then you're getting like you're emulating the parody version of it. You know, it's like right. it's retail punk rock. It's not real punk rock. Right. You know what I mean? Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I wanted to read one thing from the Athletic Report. Uh, on Jaws crew, the incident where they shined laser pointers at the Pacers to irritate them. I just wanted to read this passage because I found it both predictable and hilarious. Uh, so here it is. It's the two members of the traveling party who spoke to the athletic said that they did not see who shined the laser from the SUV. They also don't know if the laser was attached to a gun, but they believed it was. A Pacers security guard in the loading area at the time remarked, that's 100% a gun. So I want to ask both of you, have either of you ever been as confident as a security guard in believing that literally everything is a gun? Yeah, that was so predictable. Yeah. I love the idea. Well, I mean, it's I almost feel like I shouldn't answer because I don't have the extensive training that the Indiana Pacers security guard in the loading area has. An anonymous one, by yeah. the way. So that's yeah, important like to know. And, and to say something, because I know there were people in the comments of my article about uh, about this that were like almost like I was being flippant about the situation or not taking it seriously. I, it's not that I wasn't taking it seriously. It's just like, it, it, it seems pretty obvious to me that they were not shining, actually shining guns. And that it was like a pacer security guard being like overzealous and like, of course, ridiculous. Yeah. But, on, his, you know, on his observe and report shit, <laughs> like deep below whatever the name of that field house is. Whether or not they should have, even be should even be pretending that they were or i don't even know what i guess the their attempts or, or what they might have been doing with those laser pointers would be i you know i know bomani jones had a whole thing on his uh a show or a podcast i believe about like that's not something you want to do if you're rolling around memphis is shining around laser pointers regardless of what they're attached to so I do think that, yeah, I, I agree that like you probably should not be doing that. But I also think that the 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 overzealousness by the security guard and then the media to like put out the story that like were they were they shining guns is just it's it's that's what I mean when I say like there's a lot of like concern trolling happening right now. Well, also it's inherently absurd. Like it's almost like you know. You know, if if people thought you were being flippant, it's like, how else do I respond to something so utterly ludicrous? You know, just people behaving so stupidly. And not only stupidly, but almost like in a deliberate manner where it's like, you're being willfully dumb here. It's like, it's just a couple of assholes shining a laser pointer like they're at a fucking movie theater. You know what I mean? Yeah. I feel like, you know, backing the blue uh, wouldn't be, shouldn't be too hard there. You know, like this guy... It's a professional. Sorry, I don't even like where I'm going with this. Drew, yeah. move us on. <laughs> you're, like, you're like, you know what? I've started yeah, on, uh, started on like, a tangent. This is actually I don't particularly too, care too soon to be doing this bit. <laughs> uh, we've actually, we've had posts at Defector about the abolition of the police and opposition to uh, that, if not to defunding the police, then at least to the use of the language to fund the police. Uh, Israel, you've posted about um, the murder of Tortuguita uh, in Atlanta and the protests uh, around Cop City, among other gigantic, uh, you know, essentially what are stadium grifts for cops in emerging around other cities. Do you see one side of this debate as, for lack of a better word, winning the battle of hearts and minds among people? Do you see progress in terms of, um, you know, how 
how cop how police departments have been reined in across the nation, or are they essentially just bunkering down for war against their own citizenry? Progress. That's that's tricky. Uh, you know, I think that you know, I I have been heartened by the way people have rallied around the the cop city uh, protest cause in Atlanta. Uh, but it kind of it, and you know, people don't like to talk about it. But like, it kind of took a riot for that to happen, because there's been a lot of cop cities built in places like Chicago and New York and everywhere else, and there will continue to be them built all over this country. And the reason Atlanta's garnered attention was because of a riot, you know, and mm-hmm. a riot caused by, you know, once again, overzealous cops murdering the protester and trying to claim self-defense. And, you know, I just, I don't know a scenario in which, even with all the protesting, it's hard for me to imagine a scenario where this thing is not still built within a, within the next year or two. Uh, it just seems like this is, and it seems like this is where every city in America is going. I think there's been this new, or not new, but a renewed interest in this idea of a right rising crime rates and like, oh yeah, that somehow the the somehow that we like we need more police in that, and it's happening specifically in or in a lot of cities with urban. Uh, population or with uh, black mayors and black political leaders uh, in this effort to sort of this effort by the bourgeois to align themselves with police and to show that they support police and not to be on the bad side of the police and until I think people really are willing to investigate what it is they believe the police, they want the police for what they think the police do exactly. I just don't see that changing anytime soon because you're always going to have people who just align with the belief that ultimately having police is good. And until you can convince them otherwise, it's just this is the trajectory we're headed where police are have are going to convince themselves that they need to build these cities and prepare for war against their own citizens for for our own good i guess to you know save us from ourselves whatever their thinking might be they got their own slogans on it and you see a lot of that and it is really kind of worrying in the sense that it doesn't i think everything you said is correct and i think the way that it also resolves at the end to this sort of being like well they want more stuff so they can do whatever it is they want to do. And that is like, it. that's the part where there's this weird disconnect is that, you know, this idea that, you know, in order to be safe, you must have cops. I think that's an idea worth interrogating, but it is the sort of thing that everybody is sort of conditioned in this country to believe from the start or whatever by mass culture and all that other shit. The challenge is that then you are squaring it with the fact that like, you're spending more money on cops. They're telling you that you're less safe. The cops are telling you that the cities are hellholes that they, you know, whatever, are disgusted by and can't wait to leave. And then somehow the solution is just to do that more so that it is different. It feels to me like a disconnect that would, if people were looking at it a little bit more rationally or like not in that kind of like fearful lizard part of their brains, like that seems very obviously untenable. It's just also, you know, the alternative is the sort of thing that, and this is why I'm glad we've had, you know, the blogs about abolition on the site. You have to learn to think about it. Those alternatives haven't like traditionally been a part of the conversation, as I recall in my life. Well, and the thing is that they, they're, Israel asked the questions, you know, what are the police for? You know, what, what are we doing with them? And it, those are good questions. You know, I felt that I was asking myself, you know, in 2020, and I have to reckon with the uncomfortable truth that for a lot of affluent white people, you know, the answer is, you know, the police are here to keep us safe and that the police actually do that job for those people successfully. 
because that's their task is to enforce so many of the uh, inequalities that already exist. You ask, you know, a, a black person what are the police for? They're going to tell you something completely different. But for the 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 people with influence and the people with money, it is all working exactly as intended. And I have to reckon with that, you know, that sort of uncomfortable truth being. Yeah, I mean, I think there. a lot of people's a lot of people's concern with the cops is that they just don't like the the way they do it. Sometimes they might not always like what it results in. I don't want that they, murder in they, my face. You can murder yeah. him, just don't do it in my face, you know? Yeah, more or less, you know? Like, that's that's more or less the issue. Uh, well, I, uh, I just want to say, I don't care if you're a cop or not. Like, uh, you can... I just don't have it in my face, that's all. Uh, let's, let's go on to lighter subjects. Uh, on this episode, the rewatchables, uh, we should get to the guy of the week, but... <laughs> The Oscars are in a few weeks, and you, Israel, are something of a professional movie knower. I know you're a big fan of the frontrunner Tar. Can you defend that movie to me, someone who was bored out of his mind by it? I say this honestly. I really was looking forward to seeing that movie, and I thought it would be really good, and I was fucking dying for it to end. I couldn't wait for it to end. What did I miss uh, from Tar that everyone else seemed to get? Um, I'm not, I'm not big on forcing people to like things you know no no if, if no, no, are, no just you know what tell me why you liked it so that i might understand better how about that i thought uh i you know i think todd field has made he's made three movies now um i think all of them have been just quietly a real hit real knock it out the park movies um i think i think little children is probably his best but i like tar a lot i thought I think Kate Blanchett is the only. Is, she's such a. Um, I don't know how to describe her as an actress. She's almost like a. She's almost like one of the dudes, one of the bros. When it comes to to acting, she's just such a. Pull it, uh, put it all on, on out there. Daniel Day Lewis type of performer, and I thought that like her commitment to this sort of like ridiculous pretentious uh in like just kind of insane person of a character was was genuinely interesting to me and fascinating i think it's just ambiguous enough to to be interesting but not oh oh it's ambiguous sort of, right. i do you think it's overly ambiguous because i actually think it's like just like sort of maybe it's because i watched too many movies but i thought it was just like just ambiguous enough, but not overdoing it or, you know, to the point where it's completely unapproachable. I found it so subtle as to be willfully inscrutable, if that makes sense. Um, but I, I okay. don't want to, I don't want to get into a fight about it. I do want no, to, I get that. I do, but I do want to tell you something funny, which is that I, uh, cause I was like, what am I missing? And I went on Rotten Tomatoes and I just looked for all the rotten ratings. So I was like, well, surely there are critics that, that found it as boring <laughs> as I did. And there were a few. And one of them, of course, Armand of White. Of course, was Armand White. Yes. And the, and the Rotten yeah, Tomato yeah. blurb from Armand was great because it was Kate Blanchett, our fakest actress since Meryl Streep. And yeah, that Armand White hates yeah. everything. I love it. I love it. Also, <laughs> a classic Armand White move. I hope in the full review he was like, unlike a real good movie like Christmas at the Clumps, <laughs> Tar lacks so, the courage of its convictions. So, so if I was on Armand's side, I, I know that somehow I, I I fucked up. Can I ask you a Can I ask you a question though? Can I ask no. You a question? Yeah. Of course. How do you How do you feel about the, uh, the um the Juilliard scene? Uh, where she does the whole speech uh, to the to the Gen Z kid. That was where I thought there was going to be a plot. That's where I was like, okay, now we're getting somewhere. And then it just sort of frittered off for another two hours, and I so I couldn't like, I just didn't feel any momentum in the story, and so I was I I kept hoping that every sort of landmark scene I got to was going to make the story more propulsive, and you know I think. You know, part of that is me being sort of, you know, a, I'm a guy who likes like Den of Thieves and like shitty Guy Ritchie movies, you know? Like I, I have a certain, uh, you know, basic I mean, taste. I love those movies too. But, uh. <laughs> like I, like right after that, right after that, I got to tell you, I saw Tokyo Story, 
which is regarded as one of the best movies of all time. And it is an, it requires extreme patience. And it is like, it is so understated. You're like, holy fuck. Like I really got to work to get something out of this, but then it stuck with me. It has stuck with me ever since then. So like, I don't know where the line is between being beautifully subtle and being, I don't fucking get it, but like, it's between those two movies for me somehow. I don't know. Well, not to be, you know, I'll, I'll be old man uh, in a second, but I, the reason I asked that was because I find that how people feel about the movie usually comes down to that scene and what their interpretation of it is. So that's the scene where she like gets on, there's like a kid and she busts on him for his pronouns and stuff. Is that right? Yeah, so I haven't yeah, seen the less. film, but I feel like I've read about that bit. She was like, she was a dick to the kid. Yeah. Yeah, absolute dick. That was how I, I saw it. I was like, oh, she's a fucker. Because the movie keeps hinting that she's a fucker. Like, it starts off with text messages from people being like, oh, she's a real piece of work. And I'm like, all right, I won't get to see her be a fucker. And then when I did see her be a fucker, I was like, oh, thank God I'm watching this woman be a fucker. Now we're going to get somewhere. And But then it... Like, I only got her being a fucker like a couple more times after that. I needed full fucker all the way through. Israel, why do you think that scene is the pivotal scene in there? I just think yeah. that it's the, well, it's the one that people respond to the most. It's mm-hmm. the one that people have the most, uh, the, dis- the, I guess, difference of opinions about what the film is trying to do versus what the characters are doing in that scene and whether or not the movie approves is on her side, quote unquote, or whether or not the movie is against her or, and, you know, I think that that tends to be how, however people look at that scene tends to be how they look at the rest of the movie for whatever reason. Well, wasn't the purpose. I I felt that the movie left it up to you to decide as a viewer. I don't think it was telegraphing one way or another. Um, that's That was what I, I took away from it, that I was allowed to interpret how I saw fit. I thought I did a good job of that. No good movie should tell you how to feel, so, you know. Don't tell Aaron Sorkin that. Well, that real. was also, like, that was part of the response to it that seemed, like, so tiresome, is I think people want movies to tell them how to feel, or that they, or at least that this is, like, a, a type of movie discourse you see on Twitter anyway. Well, that was the whole fight about uh, what's it called? Every Martin Scorsese movie, I guess. You yeah. Could say, but also just, yeah, people, I think, you know, I, when I said I was going to be an old man for a second, like part of it, I was going to say that I think movies in the past, the reason movies in the past were a lot better than movies made today is because there's like you were, people were not afraid to just not tell you how to feel and to not, share their own feelings about things. They were comfortable just showing you stuff and letting you sort it out yourselves because they weren't going to get yelled at on the internet. So, and I do just think that there's a lack of, and I don't even think that necessarily Tar is the bravest movie in the world, but I do, I did feel like it was trying to get back to that kind of movie making of like, I don't want to tell you how to feel about anything. I just want to show you stuff. And no, I I, think, I I agree with you on that. I I think you're I think you're correct on that. So, what movie did you like out of out of these Oscar nominations? Yeah, so I haven't seen a single one of the movies as nominated. <laughs> I saw about an hour of everything, everywhere, all at once on because it's on one of the pay cable channels now, and I was both impressed with it and immediately aware that it was not for me. Um. Just in the sense that for basically for the the reason that Israel was just sort of talking about, like it was really telegraphing thematically what it was about. And I was like, I get it. I'm grown. Like I under I hope everybody makes up with each other and learns to respect and love each other and that the household gets happier too. But then I like watched an episode um, of Diners, Drive Ins and Dives after. I'm gonna I'm gonna barf. <laughs> oh, did you love it or did you hate it? I, I... <laughs> I don't I don't feel passionately enough to hate it. I just I'm tired of being told that like the power of kindness and uh, oh, yeah, that was it got my back up. Like I really was just kind of like I felt um condescended to. Oh, she felt it was corny. Yes. In short. All right. So I've seen half the movies on the list and I think the one I like the best was that one but almost by default. Like my favorite movie of last year was nope and that is not on here and then my second favorite was the menu and that's not on here 
either. So, you know, it's another, this is another Oscar season where, you know, you're left with some rooting interest, but ultimately it feels like a bit of a hollow exercise because all that really matters is what you enjoy. Uh, anyway, it's time for the guy of the week. Every week we remember an athlete of your, not a Hall of Famer necessarily, but just a guy who makes you think, hey, I remember that guy. In honor of you, Israel, uh, who is a Florida State fan, your guy of the week is Kelvin Benjamin. You remember that guy, Israel? Wow. I do remember that. Yeah, yes. How uh, fondly still- do you remember Kelvin Benjamin? <laughs> <laughs> what I remember about Kelvin Benjamin was uh, him. So I knew he wasn't going to work in the NFL. And the reason why I knew he wasn't going to work in the NFL was he had spent three years or two years at that point at FSU being like one of the laziest receivers uh, (laughs) in the entire program until for whatever reason, he and James Winston just really got along and, you know, for all the problems that James Winston has and there, we don't have to get into all of them right now, but he people really like being around them for whatever reason, like as far as teammates go. And so he kind of got the best out of him and you know, turned him into a, a, a first round pick, which I knew was going to kind of flame out. And I always felt bad for Cam Newton because you know, Cam, you kind of got a little bit of blame, a uh, short trip about like the fact that he could never make Kelvin Benjamin work. It was like, he doesn't work. He's not, he's not interested in working. He thinks he can, you know, sort of live off his talent and live off his skill alone. So I have like mixed feelings about Kelvin Benjamin for that reason. Yeah. I, the thing I respect about Kelvin Benjamin was his, I guess, probably his last official act as a professional football player, unless he's in the XFL and I don't know about it, he probably was is. him showing up at, maybe it was the Giants camp, it was some team's camp, and he was very out of shape, and he was like, I'm a tight end now, by the way. Oh, that's right! That's <laughs> right. That he had like not been working out, and he was always tall, he was always like a big dude, and so he was like, I guess I block now? I don't know, I'm an H-back. Like, you can't yell at me for how I look, which I just think is, uh, that's a real power move. That's great. That, that was uh, the Giants. You were correct. Your yep. New York Giants. What a bold uh, and brave effort. Hey, it's time to open up the fun bag. These are real questions from defector readers and distraction listeners. Uh, we only have time for one Israel. This one's from Michael. And he writes, which NFL head coach, 2010 to present, would be most likely to seek unemployment benefits if they were fired, you you can collect unemployment benefits here if you're fired as an NFL coach. And which NFL head coach would be most likely to violate the condition of actively seeking suitable employment each week <laughs> while they were collecting that uh, unemployment? So really, it's it's who would be the shadiest uh, NFL head coach? Hmm, let's see, 2010 to now. 2000. I, I mean, I'm I'm seeing Joe Judge like in my mind, like yeah. just See, flashing. I also saw Joe Judge too. That's <laughs> yeah. funny. See, I have that I problem like, all the time. It's really nice to be around some other people that are similarly afflicted. By- What's funny is that Joe Judge and Matt Patricia now they're like linked in my mind, uh, and and so deserving of it. And so when I think of one, I think of the other because just like it's. Uh, they're almost like twins in that way. Yeah. It's very exciting. I don't think Matt Patricia would do it. I think Joe Judge would, though. I think Matt Patricia, he he needs I'll, he needs the satisfaction of like walking around and make, making people think he's smart or Ooh, yeah. Yeah. he's sophisticated. Yeah. So, I don't, I don't like, need to do that. Unemployed. That's right. right. I don't need to collect unemployment. I went to Amherst. Mm. Patricia is one of those guys that has always, because of what Israel just said has always been one of those people that I've enjoyed imagining in a non-coaching job, like just trying to run like a Trader Joe's with a pencil behind his ear, being a fucking dickhead to everybody. And they're like, no, I don't think that I'm going to listen to you at all. Like we're in the fucking Hawaiian shirt. Yeah. Right. (laughs) Uh, Having to work the register and like compliment one item of somebody's order. Like Patricia being like wasabi piece, smart. (sighs) We uh, we got to wrap up the show. Right. Israel, uh, you can find Israel Daramola at Defector. And then also, uh, you can find him on Twitter. Israel is real. I-Z real. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Is, is there anything else you'd like to plug before I do all the credits, Israel? Uh, you can, I guess you can follow me on Instagram, too, if you'd like. It's uh, 
at underscore dark gable. So got uh, it. And uh that's about it, man. I'm just kinda writing and keeping low profile, I guess. The defector lifestyle. That is very cool. Eric Silver is our producer. Brandon Grugel is our editor, and our theme song is by Kirk Hamilton. Ads and production services, they're by Multitude. And you can subscribe to Defector right now. Just go to Defector.com. Hit that subscribe button, baby. You know what to do. Israel, you have been a wonderful guest. Can you come back on the podcast sometime soon? Yeah, man. I'll come back as often as you'd like. Ah, fantastic. Hey. All right. We'll see you guys next week. Bye, Roth. Bye, Israel. Bye. Bye, guys.